point. Well, good morning. Good morning to you here. Good morning to you if you're at home. Go ahead. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. So we've got some New Year's traditions around here. One of them we did last week, right? Every year, Kenny reads a sermon. And if you missed it, I really encourage you to go online, listen to it on the podcast. Charles Spurgeon, a sermon for New Year's Day. It was a good one. You'll want to listen to that if you haven't already. But another tradition that we have is to start our year off together thinking about spiritual formation. How we grow as disciples. How do we cultivate a deeper relationship with God in His Word. And for the past several years, we've used Psalm 119 to help us. So we've just taken sections of the psalm a little bit each year, and we're preaching through the entirety of the longest chapter in your Bibles. Now, as I say, spiritual formation, devotional life, your quiet time, no doubt there are people immediately feeling guilty. It's like a pastor preaching on evangelism. Everybody immediately, no matter how good or bad you are at evangelism, everybody feels like, i got to be doing more. And so maybe you're hearing spiritual formation, you're already thinking, great, I, I, I've struggled so long with having a devotional, consistent devotional life, reading my Bible, praying, and now I'm going to hear a whole sermon about how badly I do at this. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's January and you feel like, man, my Bible reading, my prayer is lights out. Like, I am off to a great start. Bring it on. Like, challenge me. Hit me up. Because I'm doing really well right now. But you see, even in my saying and your identifying with that, we already have a false presupposition. We're assuming some things. Here's what we're assuming. The real Christians... The strong, spiritual, like those who are really close to God, they're really good at this. And others of us, Christians, or so-called Christians, aren't. We're really bad at this. But one of the reasons why Psalm 119 is so compelling is that it introduces us to a man that we can all relate with. This dude is a complex dude. If you read through Psalm 119, you will see that this guy is very complex. Sometimes he's filled with faith. Sometimes he's really wrestling with doubt. Sometimes he's joyful. Other times he's in the pits of depression. Sometimes he's really close to God. Sometimes he's wandered away from the Lord. Sometimes he's loving. Sometimes he's angry. Sometimes he's courageous. Sometimes he's scared. Sometimes life is going really, really well. Sometimes life stinks. In other words, this guy is just like you. And this guy is just like me. And so the question I want to ask this morning is what motivates normal, everyday, ordinary Christians? What motivates us 
to have and to cultivate a deeper relationship with God in His Word? What, what is it that motivates us and keeps us going? If you go to the gym at all, and if you're ever in the gym in January, good luck finding a treadmill, right? Everybody's in there in January. Everybody's starting new exercise routines. Everybody's jumping on the next diet bandwagon. Everybody's forming new habits, and it's great, and we should. But if you keep going to the gym in February and in March, and definitely by April, that place is empty. As Christians, we can relate to that. Many of us have started new Bible reading plans. But what happens in February and March, right about the time that your Bible reading plan lands in Leviticus? The place where you and your Bible reading plan go to die. What carries you through? What gets us back up? What motivates us when we got off track? What motivates us to get back on track? What is it that motivates the everyday, ordinary, normal Christian, Christians like you and me, to keep pursuing a deeper relationship with God? That's what we're going to see in this section. In Psalm 119, starting in verse 65. Now, remember, Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. little grammar lesson. You guys know what an acrostic poem is. It means that this psalm is segmented by the different letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And every single section begins with a different Hebrew letter. So if you look at your Bibles, you probably have the word tet or the symbol of that letter, Hebrew letter, at the top of this section. All that means is that every line of this poem begins with that letter. Now, if we could read Hebrew, we would see that the Hebrew word for good is tov. Tov. Now, if we read the Hebrew scriptures, this is probably something about what it would sound like. It's more of a wooden translation. So you can follow along in your Bibles, but listen to how this sounds. Good you have been to your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Good judgment and knowledge teach me, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Good you are, and good you do. Teach me your statutes. Smeared me with lies, the arrogant have, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Insensitive as fat are their hearts, but I delight in your law. Good it was for me. To be afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Good to me is the law of your mouth, better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Good, 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 good. What is it that motivates this guy to keep chasing after God? God, you have been so good to me. It's the goodness of God that compels this man to keep following after God and to keep seeking God in his word. Friends, where else can you go 
where you are fully known, like everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, fully known and completely loved. To whom else can you go that knows your deepest fears, your deepest hopes, your deepest dreams, the things that are deep down inside you and actually enters into those things intimately with you? Who do you know that he, he knows what keeps you up at night, what wakes you up in the morning, the anxieties that you have and enters in actually with answers to deal with those greatest anxieties that you struggle with? Who else has orchestrated all of human history and the events of your and my life to lead us to a point that we saw Jesus loves me. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. He's coming back for me. He's made it possible for me to spend an eternity celebrating and rejoicing in the goodness of God. If you're a Christian, you know this to be true. God has been very good to you. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. What motivates us to learn God's word, to spend time with him in his word? The goodness of God. Now, one way to understand this text is to see how the psalmist remembers God's goodness in times past and his goodness in the present. So that's how we're going to look at this this morning. God's goodness in the past and God's goodness in the present. First, God's goodness in the past. He starts out by saying that God has been good to him. You've been good to me. You've dealt well with your servant in times past. What this means is that this is not something new. God's goodness to his people is not some new idea that he's recently thought up and is now treating his people this way. In fact, he says it's according to your word. It's according to what you've promised in times past. Now, one of the most rehearsed and celebrated and memorized moments of all of Israel's history was their deliverance from Egypt, right? For 400 years, they were in bondage. They were servants to Pharaoh and his harsh treatment. And God did an amazing thing. He visited his people. He delivered them through signs and miracles, these incredible things, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. He brought them to himself and he began to meet with them. It's like they were reborn, they came out of the womb of Egypt into the desert with their God, and now he meets with Moses to give them new rules to live by. You're a new people. You need new rules. You need to be my people. Now, to show God all of their great appreciation for all these powerful things that God just did, what did they do? They make a golden cow, and they start to worship it. Odd way to show God how grateful you are. But in that moment, they learned something powerful about their God. Moses, after an incredibly traumatic experience, they, they learned first that God's not messing around with sin. 
In response to that moment, God says, who will join me? Who's going to repent and believe in me? And all the Levites go to the Lord. And so the Levites go through the camp and they begin to slaughter the unfaithful Israelites. This is traumatic. Next, a plague. A plague. God sends a plague upon the people. And Moses goes up to the mountain and he pleads with the Lord, Remember, God, you said to me, your favor rests upon me. Don't abandon me. Don't let us go. If you don't go with us, we're done. You're the best thing about us. And I'm not going if you don't go with me. Now, you can imagine the Lord say, and he did, you can imagine the Lord say to Moses, Moses, we've already talked about this. I'm not going with you. This is a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. But there's something in the heart of God that won't let him say that. What is it? This is what he says to Moses in Exodus 33. Moses asks the Lord, let me see your glory. And the Lord says to him, I will make all of my what? All of my goodness. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses, because I'm good, because I'm gracious, because I'm merciful, I promise to be gracious and merciful to you. Moses, I'm going to show you my goodness. Christian brother or sister, you know this to be true. You know this to be true. At some point in your past, you saw that someone better than Moses pleaded with God for you. Someone better than Moses went before God on your behalf and said, Father, forgive her and forgive him, for they know not what they do. Jesus Christ has bled and died so that God can look to you and promise you, you will know my goodness. I promise, according to my word, to be gracious and to be merciful to you. You know the goodness of God. We know what it was like to be trapped in our sin. We know what it was like to face the sure wrath and judgment of God. And we know that God has come to us in Christ and said, that will never be your testimony. Hell will never receive you because I promise, according to my word, to be good to you. Now when we first come to know and experience this goodness, it's like, it's all we can get. It truly is to us amazing grace. But then something really odd happens. The longer you become a Christian, the longer you live as a Christian, you know that you are very susceptible to spiritual amnesia. You begin to forget some things that you shouldn't forget. You begin to be dull to things that are truly amazing. And what happens is, and one of the reasons why we don't spend oftentimes more time in God's word and with God is we have all of these wrong thoughts about God coursing through our minds. When we want to sin, God is really tolerant and really laid back. But then after we sin, God is harsh and unforgiving. Can you relate to that? 
When life is going really well, God loves me. When life is going really hard, he doesn't. We live oftentimes out of our emotions, and we think wrong things about God. Guys, that's why we need the Word. The Word is what tells us the truth about who He is. The Word is that corrects all of our wrong thoughts about God. The Word is what helps us to feel and to think rightly in whatever emotion we have. The Word is what directs us to the truth of who God is and how He acts towards us. Did you catch the fact in verse 67 that the psalmist has gone astray? Can you remember any times recently that you have gone astray? And typically when we go astray, that's when we're most susceptible of thinking wrong thoughts about God. But if you have ever come back to the Lord, what was it that brought you back? It was the goodness of God that you know to be true that you've been taught from his word. So where do we go? We go to places like Luke 15. I mean, could Jesus have told a more vivid story about the Father's heart for wandering sinners? Two sons. The first one shames his father, takes all of the money that's coming to him, and goes out and blows it. Like he totally wastes his entire inheritance and makes a total wreck of his life. The second son, he's the good kid. He never leaves home. He does all that the father has taught him to do. And then he self-righteously acts as if everything's coming to him because of how good he's been. So you have one son who's the heathen addict and the other who's the self-righteous jerk. He judges everybody because they're not as good as he is. How does the father treat those two sons? Well, when he sees the addict come running from far away, he sprints. He sprints to go meet him. He throws his arm around. I have been waiting for you to come home. I am so glad that you're here. The son doesn't even get the apology out of his mouth because the father loves him so deeply. Come on home. We're going to have a party. We We are going to celebrate now. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Then, in the midst of that party, the father leaves. The father leaves that party to go to a different party. He goes to the other son's pity party. The older son's in the backyard pouting because dad's treating so-and-so so much better than me, and I deserve this. What does the father do to him? Runs to him. He, the father, initiates that conversation. What are you doing out here? I love you. All that I have is mine. All of this is always for you. Come inside. Do you see what Jesus is teaching us for the heart of God toward wandering sinners? God loves to gather us back up. No matter if you're the heathen addict or the self-righteous jerk, God's coming for both of us. The heart of God, the goodness of God is drawing us back to his self. That's God's heart. That's his goodness. Now this week, i got to tell you guys, I have really been burdened for wandering sinners. Not just for people who are unbelievers. I pray for them too, but I'm talking about Christians. Wandering Christians. 
partly because I know the experience. Right now, there are some of you that are wandering away from the Lord. You're really believing lies like life would be a lot better if I could just get this like religious, churchy, ruley Christianity. If I could just get away from the Lord, if I could just get away from the church, if I could just get away from the discipline of having to follow Jesus as a disciple, then I would finally be like free and take a deep breath and then I'll be happy. You're really believing those lies. And maybe, like the prodigal son, your life is starting to be filled with affliction. And in those moments, it's very tempting for you to misjudge the Lord. Like God's doing this because he's mad at me and he's punishing me. The psalmist knew and the prodigal son knew that what God was doing was allowing that person to reap the consequences of their actions, not because he's mad at you, but because he's trying to draw you back home. And that's what I think the Lord wants to remind us of. If you're being tempted to wander away, if your life is starting to be filled with afflictions, that's not because God, that's not an indication that God's mad at you. Those very things are the indication that God loves you. He's doing those things to say to you, come home. What are you doing? Where else are you going to go to find the love that I alone can provide for you, that I love to love you with? Come home. Return to me. You see, it's the goodness of God. Christianity is, is less like, man, I really messed up. I hope dad doesn't find out. Christianity is, I've really messed up. I better go talk to dad. Friends, the heart of God for wandering sinners is come home. I love you. I know what you've done. It's a lie to believe to go anywhere else you'll find freedom in life. Come home to me. Come home. It's the goodness of God that keeps us coming back to him over and over and over again. The psalmist remembers God's goodness in times past, but he also remembers God's goodness in the present. God's goodness in the past and his goodness in the present. We see here that it's not ease that prompts this prayer. It's pain. 69, verse 69 says he's being smeared with lies. His reputation is being destroyed. He's being slandered, and the people who are doing it could care less. Their heart is like lard. It's insensitive. It has no idea or cares less about the pain that their lies are afflicting this man with. His, his reputation is completely ruined. But notice what this guy's not doing. He's not reading and rereading all of his emails. He's not scrolling through Twitter and reading all of the, the replies and the threads about how much people disagree and hate him. What's occupying his mind, what's saturating his thoughts, is the Word of God. 
And it's because it's God's word that teaches him that this painful experience is actually meant for his good. The word reinterprets our circumstances for us. The word is what teaches this man that what is happening, as difficult and as painful as it is, is actually doing him good. God's word is so incredibly skilled at doing this. And we so desperately need it. Why? Because you and I are hardwired for comfort and ease. And our culture constantly kicks us in that direction. We love it. We love, we crave, we idolize things to be easy. We are accustomed to prosperity. Listen to Spurgeon on this. He's comparing the benefits of trial, suffering, hardship, and the dangers of prosperity. Trials, Charles Spurgeon says, are like thorns that prick us and keep us in the pasture. But prosperity is like a gap in the hedges through which we slip out of the fold. Do you see what he's saying there? Who talks like this now? Nobody talks like this. That's why I need to hear this. The carnal love of ease is unwise. The spiritual person sees stormy weather as healthier for their soul. What weak creatures we are. We turn the abundance of God's goodness into an occasion for sin. That's a hard word. And I know 2020 has been a hard year. But what could be a lot worse is that we would mishandle the prosperity, Lord willing, of 2021, and like a gap in the hedges, we slip out the back door of Christianity. Or we slip out the door of the church. We slip out the door of fellowship. We depart. We take the abundance of God's goodness to us, and instead of turning it into an opportunity to pursue the Lord, we actually get so comfortable and distracted and consumed with materialistic need and ease that we've got no time for God. What's worse? Spurgeon says ease is a lot worse than, than suffering if suffering drives you to Christ. It's a hard word, church, but we need it. I need it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, if you really want to know the Bible, he's talking about Psalm 119. If you really want to know the Bible, there are three rules that you find here. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and trial. The first two make sense, right? Prayer. I've got to pray and ask God for the Holy Spirit to open my eyes and to illuminate God's Word. Get it. Meditate. Yeah, I've got to rehearse and rehearse and read and reread and pray and think about God's Word to know it. I get it. But trial? I've got to suffer? Martin Luther, you're telling me I've got to suffer to know God's Word? He says, trial teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience. To experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. And then he says this. Once you know that and experience that, the devil is going to afflict you. But he'll make a real theologian out of you. 
Is that what the Bible teaches? Does God's word back that up? Remember Joseph. Hated by his brothers, we've got two options. Kill him or sell him. Option two. Joseph goes and becomes a slave in Egypt and rises to prominence only to be accused of harassment and then shuffled back down to prison. Talk about being smeared with lies. Joseph lived the life that this psalmist knows. Then he interprets the Pharaoh's dream, so he rises. Number two, all of Egypt, number two God. Finally takes all of the provision of Egypt and preserves and, and, and provides for all the nations so that they don't die in this famine. His dad dies. After dad dies, the brothers are like, I know what you're going to do. Now that dad's dead, now you're going to get revenge on all of us. Accused, slandered again. Joseph's like, what are you talking about? That's not who I am. I'm not sitting here harboring bitterness against you guys. Don't you see what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is about the goodness of God. This whole thing is about the goodness of God. How did Joseph learn that? He learned it through the trial. He became a real theologian and his trial is what taught him the providence of God is working all things together for my good, even the injustice that I've experienced, the pain that I've had to go through. God was doing those things. It's so much greater than me. He's doing these things to be good to the nations. And of course, Joseph just gets us ready for another one. Joseph's story is just priming the pump so that when another is sold for a sum of money, for another who is falsely accused, for another who is mistreated and complete injustice and suffers and dies, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, that is the worst, most evil moment of all of human history. What we meant for evil God was working for the, the world's greatest good. What we meant for evil, God is working for good. Friends, Joseph's story, the psalmist's story, Jesus' story, that's our story. Has this year been hard? Yes, it has. Are there still hardships that we're facing? Yes, we are. There's no guarantee that 2021 is going to be better. And this is the guarantee. It won't be trouble-free. We know it won't. But the greater reality that this psalm is teaching us is whatever troubles await us, the greater reality is that God is going to use those troubles for our good. Why? Because He is good and He does good to us. That's what we want his word to keep teaching us that's what the psalmist keeps on coming back to God to learn let me let me just close with this the aim of my sermon is very simple I'm just trying to get you guys to go and read your Bibles and I'm trying to say that God loves you and you should go spend time with him okay so if you're looking for the application there it is but I know that some of us are going to go out of here and we're going to be more thinking about the duty of having my quiet time and not seeing it like the psalmist does, which is delight. 
We think duty, he thinks I delight in God's law. By now you've seen and heard of these reality TV shows. It's on Discovery, it's called Gold Rush, right? You've seen these. These people, these families that go out into Alaska and they dig for gold. And it's not easy, right? There's all this weather that they got to go through. Their machines break down. There's conflicts. They're battling. There's a lot of greed. But when they strike gold, what happens? All of those troubles are completely forgotten. We found it. I want you to go out of here thinking and seeing yourselves as gold diggers. That's who we are as Christians. We're treasure hunters. When we get this book out, is it always easy? No. Are we distracted? Yes. Is it hard to understand? Absolutely. But every once in a while, you know as well as I do that God speaks to you and tells you something that you need to hear. You see something new. You understand something just a little bit different and you know God himself is speaking to me through this book. You have struck gold. That's what we are. We're treasure hunters. This is a trove of treasures to be explored. Will you this year go and be a treasure hunter? Will you be a gold digger? Will you go and seek God because he's been so, so good to you? That's what I want us to do, to seek the Lord, not as our duty, although it is, and we should, but because he and his word is our great delight. Amen? Amen.